Welcome to Commons Groundswell, a podcast that examines human relationship with land through conversations with inspiring leaders, changemakers, and agrarian trust collaborators. Welcome to Commons Groundswell. In today's episode, I speak with Leah Penniman. Leah is a farmer, educator, author, food justice activist, and co-founder of Soul Fire Farms in Grafton, New York. She is the author of Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms' Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land, and she just published a new book called Black Earth Wisdom, Soulful Conversations with Black Environmentalists. In this conversation, Leah shares about her new book, the inspiration for writing it, and some of the wisdom she learned in the process. We talk about the cultural and spiritual shift that is needed to address the ecological crisis of this moment, and the joy and liberation that come when engaging directly with land in a meaningful and culturally relevant way. Welcome, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It is wonderful to be at the tail end of the season and, you know, watching the land tuck itself in for winter as it should. So Mm -hmm. we're in the middle of a big snowstorm that is blanketing the earth with like layers of sticky, white, wet amazingness. Mm. Yeah, No one's going anywhere today. (laughs) Yeah, that's so nice. Well, congratulations on your incredible new book. Thank you for letting me read it. I... It was lovely and I learned so much and I constantly found myself looking up more about the stories. Like in part one, you have all these different amazing stories, some of them that I was familiar with and a lot that I were just never heard of. And yeah, it was it was great. Well, thank you. I'm really, really excited. Black Earth Wisdom comes out in late February. And as you know, it's it's really a collage, a tapestry of the voices of people who haven't forgotten the language of the earth, you know, haven't forgotten how to listen to the breeze, the stars, the ice cores, the pH levels of the ocean, the soil microbes who are all communicating all the time. Um, and Dr. George Washington Carver talks about nature as God's unlimited broadcasting st- station, you know, so I really believe that part of what we need to do in order to survive and thrive as a species is to rekindle that ability to hear the language of the earth. So I'm I'm really excited that this book will be birthed into the world in just a couple short months and, you know, be in folks' hands and hopefully spark a lot of important conversations about ecological humility and earth listening. Mm Mm-hmm. So I definitely want to dig more into the book. Um, But first, do you mind just introducing yourself, um, just who you are, where you're calling in from, and just a little bit of background about yourself? Absolutely. So my name is Leah Penniman. I'm one of the founding co-directors and farm manager here at Soulfire Farm in Mohegan Territory, Grafton, New York. I've been a farmer and food justice activist since I was a teenager, over 25 years also been a high school environmental science and biology educator in uh, regional schools for over 17 years. I'm a mother of two, and I am a member of clergy in West African indigenous religions of uh, Bodun and Arisha Ifa. Mm -hmm. So 
so much of your your work and life is tied to the land. How did you come to do this land-based work? Well, I've had a very close relationship with nature since since I was young. I grew up primarily in a rural town, Ashburnham, Massachusetts, and it was socially challenging. Our family was, uh, for most of my childhood, the only family of color uh, in that town, and racialized bullying was brutal, uh, to say the least. So my siblings and I found a lot of solace in the natural world, which accepted us for who we were. And so we befriended the pine trees, the blueberry bushes, the the lakes, the mountain near our home, and developed this fierce sense of protectiveness for nature as our closest friend. So when I, you know, entered teenagehood and was looking for a job, I wanted to do something in service of nature. And my mom found a flyer at church for the Food Project, uh, which is a youth farming and youth development program in and around Boston. And, you know, I was fortunate to be hired and fell in love with that elegant simplicity of seed to table and, you know, the satisfaction of, of hoeing a row and seeing it clean. So never stopped. I continued to work as a farmer for my summer jobs throughout my schooling. And then um, as an adult, my spouse and I uh, founded Soul Fire Farm, which is, you know, a whole, <laughs> a whole story unto itself. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. I, um, in preparation for this, I listened to so many, you have an incredible amount of media and I'll just say on the Soulfire Farm website, on your media tab, there's just an incredible number of resources for people to dig into. And, um, I appreciate you sharing your story over and over again. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here speaking with you. Your new book, Black Earth Wisdom, can you share a little bit about how, like, where the idea for this book came from and um, how you, de- you know, you decided to structure it in a kind of interesting way, similar to your last book, Farming While Black? Um, can you share a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I fell in love with writing by accident. Um, you know, our farm needed a newsletter. And so I took a turn at writing it and, and found I enjoyed it. And some of our blog posts got picked up by magazines like Yes Magazine and got out to a wider audience, which then caught the attention of publishers uh, who requested I write my first book. So Farming While Black uh, was, you know, a delightful surprise at just how much I loved writing. And in many ways, it was the book that I needed to read as a young person, you know, who yearned for examples of noble Black agrarianism, for examples of culturally relevant farming. So after having so much fun with Farming While Black, I knew that there was another book coming, but I wanted to wait for, um, you know, for the idea that was right. And, you know, I haven't told too many people this story, but I was in ceremony. We were doing ceremony in our land during the pandemic in uh, West African Orisha tradition and was having all these really, really powerful dreams. And in one of them, my room was filled with animals from the forest, like, you know, deer and owls and Fisher cats, and they were really upset with me because I'd forgotten how to hear their language. They were like, used to speak our language when you were a kid, and now now you don't. And um, I was really stirred by this dream and did some deep reflection on the truth of that. You know, as life has gone on, how much more I'd become focused on humans' experience of nature, but not really on quite as much on tuning into that direct relationship. And it, be, it was part of me coming back to being the, a hands-on farmer on the land versus doing, you know, primarily education work, but also got me interested in talking with other Black folks who were very interested in this idea of earth listening and 
you know, I asked Mama Claudia, who's a mentor of mine, and Mama Ira Wallace, like, I know you two know how to listen to the earth. Like, who else? And they gave me names. And then those people gave me names. And pretty soon there were dozens and eventually hundreds of like Black Earth listeners that had powerful stories to tell. So I said, there's there's no way these will all fit in, in you know, in a book that has sort of a singular narrative, which is why this kind of collage, this collage of essays and interviews and poetry um, came about. And you know, there's also a directory I'm going to publish that has hundreds more names that couldn't fit in the book, but really need need to be out there. And it's it's just so humbling. So I'll tell you one example. Uh, Mama Audrey Peterman, who is a Black elder from Jamaica, who has spent her life traveling uh, the national parks and defending the national park system, talks about nature as a, pri- the sky specifically as a primary source and how our ancestors were able to read the stars to tell in the sky, to tell weather, to tell directionality, um, to read the future. And how, as we've lost that ability to read nature, it's kind of like we're caught in this dangerous game of telephone where, you know, a person who can read nature whispers to the next person who whispers to the next. And by the time it gets to the halls of Congress or to, you know, the dining room table in a typical household, there's no, um, it's lost. The message is lost. It's been so distorted. And that part of our healing as humanity is to get back to our primary sources, uh, which I, I thought was such a powerful metaphor for the ways that we can, you know, rekindle that ability to hear what the earth has to say and what the, the sky has to say. He's the spokesperson for the IFA uh, worldview for the, for the globe and my teacher. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I loved everything that he said and um, he was talking about how there's like more than just legislation that needs to happen. Passing legislation is one thing, but there has to be a foundational shift in our understanding and, and relationship to nature <clears throat> to have a real impact. Mm-hmm. So it just like makes me think of like telephone is, is, is something, but you know, that person at the very end of the line, not having that direct connection or relationship to earth or nature in general, you know, how meaningful are the words anyway? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I wish I by an ex- esteemed elder who is a whole library unto himself with the memorization of the sacred literature and history of his people. I mean, I cannot say enough in reverence of of him and his role in my life. You know, he talks about how in traditional Yoruba cosmology, every aspect of nature is a divinity. So the trees, the rocks, the mountains, the rivers, they are they are God. And if you imagine a worldview that does not see the earth as a resource to be extracted and instead really understands this relational and sacred aspect, it's a complete flip in terms of how we're going to engage, right? Asking for permission, engaging with moderation, only taking what it is that we need to survive, um, engaging with humility, right? And so I, I do think 
legislation is the manifestation of a society's values, but legislation doesn't drive a society's values. You know, that fundamental shift is really needed for anything to be enduring. And, and he gives the example, you know, if you tell someone like you can't kill these whales because it's the law, but there hasn't been that cosmological shift, they'll find a way around to kill the whales or next time they're in power, they'll take away the no whale killing legislation and put back the extractive legislation, right? And so it has to be a, a cultural shift alongside whatever new rules we create. Mm-hmm. Um, you mention in the book that the current ecological crisis is really a spiritual plight. Um, I feel like you're sort of getting at that with what you're describing right now. Can you tell a little bit more about what, what you mean when you say that? Sure. I think that um, in many ways, the current ecological crisis is rooted in an idea of human supremacy and human separateness. And it's actually not that different in some ways from heteropatriarchy, from racism, from settler colonialism, because all of these oppressive, oppressive structures rely on an idea of certain beings uh, having personhood, being worthy of rights, and other beings being other than person, right? And so we've seen that with chattel slavery, with Black people being considered non-human, um, with Native folks being considered less than as um, domestic dependents or worse, and, and being the victims of attempted genocide. You know, we've seen this sort of um, definition of humanness and non-humanness be a justification for ravage, for pillage, for exploit. And not dissimilarly, the way that human beings have set ourselves apart and imagined ourselves as sort of the pinnacle of evolution or the crowning jewel of creation, um, can allow us to relegate all other beings to a status of environment or resource. When the reality is that human beings are the younger siblings in creation, you know, the hawks and the owls and the foxes, they're, they're elder brothers and sisters and, and siblings. And so there's a certain deference and humility and learning that needs to come with being the youngest, the newest on the scene. And that is what I mean when I say that there's, you know, there's a spiritual shift needed if we're going to have the ecological sustainability that we all desire. Mm -hmm. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your personal spiritual background and upbringing? Sure. So I'm a double PK. I'm a double preacher's kid. My mother is an ordained minister in the Unitarian Universalist tradition um, and, a, you know, a leader in the church. My father is a lay minister, and so I grew up uh, deeply spiritual. They both have a radical theology um, rooted in, you know, treating your neighbor as you would treat yourself, rooted in, in justice and um, the rights of the poor. And so I've been fascinated with and really connected to that spirituality for most of my life. I will say that my sister and I, thought that we invented our own religion, which we called Mother Nature as a child, but we'd go into the woods and make shrines and decorate them with, you know, feathers and berries and, and pray to Mother Nature. And, and when I traveled to my ancestral homelands in West Africa as a young adult, there was this awakening of, of truth that we weren't so much inventing as we were remembering. And so since then, you know, I've started to learn and study. I became a uh, initiated and, and trained as both a queen mother in Bodun and a priest in of Oya and a Rumila Ifa later on in the Yoruba tradition. So I study that 
alongside holding a deep appreciation for all the world religions. Um, I married a Jewish person. Our family practices Judaism. Um, you know, I, I love going to eat celebrations. <laughs> I love meditation. So I really, you know, I continue to hold in some ways that Unitarian Universalist perspective of the ultimate capital T truth being somewhere just beyond the intersection of all the ways that we attempt to know God. Um, but I most actively practice our, our an ancestral indigenous West African traditions. How does spirituality, ritual, tradition, how does that weave into, you could either answer it, your work with Soulfire Farm or maybe into Soulfire Farm, you know, as a space, like how do you guys utilize um, or how do you, how do you all utilize ritual and tradition? I love that question, you know, and, you know, Soulfire Farm is is not a religious organization, you know, so there, it's not that we so much impose or expect, you know, spiritual practice, but it's been fascinating how our personal practice, which we've always sort of done alongside or over in the corner, has, has intrigued, you know, participants who come through. So for example, I'll name a few aspects of my personal practice that folks have become really interested and engaged in. Um, we give offerings to the land. So we, we see food as in some ways this universal language, right? If I say to an ant, uh, you know, good morning, you won't understand me. If I said, buenos dias, you won't understand me. If I, you know, in whatever human language, but if I pour some honey on the ground, the ant will come, will understand. Mm. And in many ways you can see all elements in creation are eating. Even the rivers are like pulling minerals from the banks into them. You know, the planetary bodies are using their gravity to pull space dust towards, right? So there's, we, we drink the sunlight. So there's this exchange of material resources that is very a universal language. And so the way that we tap into that is by making offerings. We put on the ground honey, you know, palm oil, um, water, cornmeal, things like that. And, and we do that before the harvest. We do that before we enter the woods. So that's a very simple example on that part of a daily practice. And then as far as cycles of the year, you know, we have our harvest festival of Manje Yam, which is this like really fun yam honoring celebration with lots of singing and this mystical journey where we roll on a whole bunch of banana leaves back to the land of our ancestors. So we do spiritual bath. There's a lot of, a lot of things. And, you know, it surprised me at first how much, um, how often folks who were coming for farmer training would be very interested in how to connect to ancestral earth-based traditions. And so we started offering that as an opt-in. You know, if you want to do a spiritual bath or if you want to learn these things, you know, that's available. And also encouraging people to bring their own spiritual practice, their Buddhist practice, their Jewish, Christian, Muslim practice, because there are, if you trace back far enough, there are earth-honoring aspects, you know, to all of the world world's traditions. But it's been it's been really moving, you know. As much as I'm I'm a total science nerd, I give a great I think a great soil chemistry class. But a lot of times when people reflect on their time at Soulfire Farm, they're not praising you know my presentation of cation exchange capacity. They're usually talking about some kind of healing, um, you know, psycho spiritual liberatory healing that happens when they're in relationship with land when they're doing. Um, culturally, culturally resonant practices. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thanks for sharing those, those practices. Um, yeah. And I love that uh, in your book, I love that you explored even the Abrahamic religions that we often think of uh, not as the most earth honoring that actually 
there are roots um, that honor the earth. And I loved how you spoke with people of all backgrounds, all religions, and they were all able to share the ways that they honor earth within their own spiritual practice. Absolutely. I was really struck in talking with um, Ibrahim Abdul-Mateen in specifically about Islam and spirituality and all of these teachings of the Quran that that leads you towards like earth as mosque, earth as temple, you know, everywhere is sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that every aspect of creation is praising God. So when you destroy a tree, you've cut off a song of praise to the divine you silenced a voice of praise, right? It adds this whole other layer of just infusing um, sacredness, you know, all around. And and that was really powerful to, um, to learn about. You talk a lot about, well, you're pay, you pay a lot of homage to Black agrarians and um, Black environmentalists that, you know, really didn't maybe get the respect and acknowledgement that they deserved as, you know, they sort of are at the roots of modern day environmentalism, you know, modern day environmental literature and wisdom. Can you, you know, were there any stories that really surprised you or or stuck out that you'd like to share? I love this question. So because farming has been, you know, my life for over 20 years and because of Farming While Black, that was an area that I was more well-versed in. And it were, you know, it was things like learning about the oceans that were the big ahas for me. But I will say, just for the sake of folks who maybe are not as familiar, that so many of the practices that we celebrate as organic and regenerative farmers do have Afro-Indigenous roots, as well as roots in other Indigenous communities. So take raised beds, for example, which do an amazing job of like concentrating fertility and managing water. We can thank the Obambo people of Namibia, right, for raised beds. Uh, Polycultures, where you grow a whole bunch of things together instead of like cropping them one at a time. Uh, Places in the world like Nigeria have hundreds of polyculture combinations. In Haiti, polyculture combinations are combined with terracing to create these jardin lacus that have you know, trees with shrubs, with annual crops, with animals running around. Um, Cover cropping and a lot of soil care strategies were popularized by Dr. George Washington Carver out of Tuskegee University in the late 1800s and early 1900s, who's arguably one of the founders of the modern regenerative movement and was responsible for teaching a whole generation how to heal soil. Um, Compost technologies like African dark earth out of um, Liberia and Ghana, you know, we can thank women in those nations for developing those techniques over hundreds of years that sequester carbon and are, you know, super rich in nutrients. And there, there are so many more examples, but I name those because when I was learning how to farm and, and studying and attending conferences as a young person, the narrative presented to me was that you know, basically everything, everything good in sustainable agriculture is either European or magically ahistorical. There wasn't really any mention of indigenous or Afro-indigenous roots to these very, very important technologies where we're now finding we need to catch up to our ancestors and then innovate from there in order to figure out how to feed the world without destroying the planet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you give so many good examples. I mean, you know, I already mentioned this, but I love that part one is sort of like a profile on all of these people, groups of people, movements that, you know, everyone should really know about. What was a what was a story that surprised you? So I really enjoyed learning from Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson about the role of the oceans um, in our 
in the biosphere. I did not know that the oceans are the number one place that we get our oxygen. I didn't understand the extent to which the oceans really are absorbing um, not just carbon, but also temperature. And the primary productivity of phyto phytoplankton is like mind blowing. So it was, you know, as someone who's so focused on land and soil, it's very easy to forget that almost the entire surface of the planet is like covered in blue. And it's, you know, super majority unexplored, not understood, sort of seen as this away zone, when it's absolutely crucial for uh, it's the lungs of the ocean is the lungs of the planet. And there's so much potential for sea farming without any inputs as a way of capturing carbon and nutrients and restoring the oceans to health. So that was, that was really inspiring and really got me, you know, my head out of the soil, <laughs> pun intended, and like looking at the blueness of the planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess on that note of the interconnectedness of it all, you, you mentioned at one point that, you know, words that we use like nature, environment, earth, in, in our modern context, um, they separate us from nature in a way and that, you know, we, we kind of have to find, you know, our way back to that, you know, we're all, to, we're all a part of it together. And I'm wondering um, how, if you have any ideas for how we can begin to change our language, you know, mm. both in, in like conversation with other adults, but, you know, also when we're teaching our children and the next generation. And do you have any ideas about that? Oh, beautiful. So I'm definitely not a linguist. I've asked to ask my, Naima, my sister is so good at coming up with words for things, but, you know, to, to back up a minute, I think that, you know, I had to have it pointed out to me how much the language we use about the earth is divisive. Like when you think of the word environment, that's a setting when you think of natural resource management, a resource automatically implies that its purpose is to be consumed, right? Um, even nature, the assumption is there's humans sort of over here, society development, and then nature over there. And we don't have language in English for kinship. You know, I often, you know, the best we can do is to approximate by using our human kin words for nature. And so a lot of times we'll talk about, you know, grandfather stone or cousin pine tree or, you know, my kin or my beyond human kin. And I think that that is a step, but also because we're borrowing words that were created with another intention in mind, the language can be confusing. So I actually think we need a whole new lexicon to describe um, or to embody that kinship relationship when we refer to, you know, plants and animals and fungi and rocks and rivers. Like, um, I think that while this is not a linguistic answer, it's more of a legal answer, like something that I'm really intrigued by where, that I think points in the right direction is the rights of nature movement. Um, and the idea of the rights of nat nature movement is to give personhood status uh, to certain ecosystems or aspects of the environment so that they have rights that can be protected in court. Uh, this happened with the Manumen rice in the Ojibwe community um, in Ecuador and some other South American countries are writing this into their constitution. The Maori people um, have worked on rights of nature for a sacred river, right? So thinking about, you know, if corporations can have standing in court and personhood, 
then why is it wild, right, for a river to have personhood and sort of the right to exist, the right to defend um, its needs for survival? So I'm very intrigued by that. And I think that working in that direction will help us develop the language that we need to, um, to restore dignity to our beyond human kin. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. I agree. And it is inspiring to see that, you know, that is a growing movement. And there have definitely been some wins for the rights of nature. So, yeah, it, it gives you some hope. I will read the closing essay for Black Earth Wisdom, which is called Exegesis, A Conversation Between the Author and the Earth. And it's apropos because we are in an ice storm right now. And this was written during an ice storm last year. So <laughs> there is a dangerous magic to an upstate New York ice storm. Even as power lines strain and sag under the weight of fallen trees and roads become menacious black ice rinks, the earth offers up a singular and dramatic tableau. Each tree, trunk, branch, and twig is coated with a crystalline encasement that catches the sunlight in a dazzling display. Branches laden with verglas bend and weave into one another in, as ice and basketry. The forest transforms herself into a maze of bent over hemlock caves, rainbow prism, icicle jewels, and tinkling arboreal wind chimes. It was during a walk in this icy landscape, jaw open in awe, that the land instructed me on how to, how to conclude Black Earth wisdom. As a daughter of two preachers and a devout student of several world religions, Judaism, Ifa, Bodun, Christianity, and Buddhism, I know what it means to read sacred texts with painstakingly exhaustive reverence. I've spent long hours dedicated to biblical exegesis, sometimes focused on a single line or word in the text, peeling back the layers of meaning to reveal divine intention. As devotees, we study sacred texts not to attempt to dominate God, but to learn how to honor the gift of our existence and to, to elucidate the spiritual instructions for living well. On this lucent day, the land invited me to apply this same detailed, careful, and deferential study to the earth herself. The message was that the earth is a sacred text to be explored with a comparable attentiveness to the ways we humans study our Quran, Tripitaka, Bible, Vedas, Torah, or Odu Ifa. After all, the sacred texts are just human approximations of the original primary source, nature's earth and her universe. I was invited to undertake an exegesis of the earth. I wondered then what would be the first chapter or more precisely the first verse of my exege exegetical exploration. As if to answer my pondering, a rotting log promptly tripped me and I tumbled into the snow. So it's you, I acknowledged, smiling silently. I dusted off and rose to my knees, leaning in to read the decomposing trunk. In Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, there are four levels of exegetical analysis. Caliph Jafar al-Sadiq taught that the Quran has four levels of interpretation, writing, the book of God has four things, literal expression, ibara, allusion, ishara, subtleties, lataif, and deepest realities, hakaik. 
The literal, literal expression is for the common folk. The illusion is for the elite. The subtleties are for the friends of God and the deepest realities are for the prophets. I love, um, I just love that you, you know, that, that you tripping and falling like in this beautiful (laughs) moment is a part of the revelation. I mean, I think we can all relate to that. (laughs) Absolutely. So I'll just read the closing part. So skipping to the fourth and deepest level of mystical revelation, which is sod, the esoteric meaning I wrote. Through Grandmother Pine's decomposing form, I travel to the stars and witness the inception of time and space. I see that all of the universe is contained in this singular rotting log. I see that God is contained within, in the place that contains and is the spirit that permeates this ancestor tree, just as God permeates all beings. My heart breaks open with awe and love. I am kneeling before this log, and now my kneeling becomes worship, and I listen to what instruction she will impart. It is this. For all her life and death, through all reincarnations back to the dawn of time, she has been an author of intricate beauty, an artist of generosity. As younger siblings of creation, our sacred duty is to emulate our elders, the trees, the mountains, the hawks, and the stars. Just as they model, we too are here to make beautiful and intricate gifts. When we allow our hearts to open in love and when we dedicate ourselves to the singular purpose of creating beauty, there is no space left for harm, greed, or violence. When we seek the divine presence in each being and allow ourselves to enter into kin-centric interdependence, then we finally arrive at healing and liberation for ourselves and all the earth. Mm. I have some goosebumps. (laughs) Thank you you so much for reading that. Something that we haven't really talked a lot about, but is clearly at the center of Black Earth wisdom is this act of listening. And you know, that listening is more than just being quiet. Can you, you know, what does listening look like for you? Well, this idea of listening to the earth is really important because I think that, um, I know that the earth speaks in many different languages. So the scientists who read the ice cores to understand the gaseous nature of past atmospheres are listening, are tuning into the earth, right? When you go out and do a phenological study and you notice that the lilac buds are bursting later um, or earlier and earlier every spring, and then you read that as an understanding of climate change, right? That is listening to the voice of the earth. You know, people who um, spend time doing wildlife photography and are noticing that the, the bird migrations are shifting are earth listeners. And I think it's tragic, even in the sciences, the practices around um, naturalism and direct and organismal biology, the direct observation of nature have declined in favor of reductionist lab-based studies. So you have a model organism like a stickleback fish and you only know about stickleback fish and you measure them, right? But this idea of of having a, a literacy, like being able to go outside and know the names, just the names of the trees or just the names of the birds is slipping through our, our fingers. And and so listening to the earth is about regaining this very practical literacy of like, oh, you are a striped maple tree, like nice to meet you. <laughs> but there's also a spiritual component, right? There's the ability to go to nature, to be quiet, to still the mind and to actually pay attention to what is happening in the present moment. 
the calls of animals, the rustle of branches, the feeling of, of breeze, the dampness of moss. Like that is also the way that, that the earth communicates. And there's no substitute for direct contact. This cannot be mediated through a screen or a podcast or, you know, we need to be in nature, observing, listening, being still, um, quieting ourselves and paying attention to this, you know, again, as Dr. Carver said, like this voice of the divine that is constantly broadcasting to us if we could, if we could only tune our channel uh, to that right, that right signal. Mm, yeah, I love that. So I wanted to ask you a question that you asked to, I'm sorry, can you remind me his name? Awisha Agbaye. Yes. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Awisha Agbaye. You ask him in this book, you say, we are now in the age of Oba Jun Oba Junjun, yeah. Oba Junjun, the age of the king who consumes, which is connected to industry, processed food, greed, and exploitation. As we think toward the next age of humanity in which a new covenant can be made, what are its principles? How can we move beyond force and exploitation and toward reverence and interdependence? How would you answer that question? Well, his answer is the best. So y'all going to just have to read the book and see. But I think that um, how do we move towards interdependence? Um, I think a big part of the shift is going to be this practice of cultural biomimicry or sacred biomimicry. So understanding that nature and civilizations that live very close to nature have a lot of this figured out. Um, nature is a gift economy, for example. Uh, nature is a col has collaborative economics. You know, if you look at the forest super uh, super organism and mother trees or hub trees, you know, sharing sugars and minerals and messages for free through a network. And, you know, as they're sort of dying blessing, dumping all the resources they've accumulated throughout their life into this network, uh, supporting kin and non-kin. Um, if you look at the, the non-wastefulness, the sort of endless recycling that happens in nature. So a lot of these... Uh, a lot of these elements exist for us to copy and civilizations that live close to nature have copied them. They have a gift economy. They make sure that, you know, the ground is never bare, <laughs> making sure that things are, are shared in these particular ways. And as we learn to listen again, and as we learn to, you know, use the earth as a tool of instruction, I think that some of those cultural evolutionary points will fall into place. At the same time, you know, I don't want to minimize the incredible work that it is to dismantle empire. You know, we've been under 500 years or so of heteropatriarchal neocolonialism and the settler state. And it's it's powerfully motiva motivated by the extractive principle of, of greed and accumulation. And there are a small handful of people that are benefit benefiting massively from the extraction of labor and wealth and resource from the earth. And so resistance is needed. You know, it's not that we just one by one sort of adopt these practices because, you know, power concedes, concedes nothing without a demand. And so we are going to have to engage our strategies of, of resistance, of organizing in order to, you know, dismantle these harmful structures and make way for more natural structures and more um, liberatory structures to take their place. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you guys at Soulfire Farms are doing 
just incredible, incredible work. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your strategy, which I'm going to also say that I looked at your website last night and um, you have your 2023 strategic goals listed. Oh, we did post those. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) They are up there. And I was like, my mind was so blown by how many amazing goals you have. And, you know, they're, they're specific and they're actionable and attainable. Like I can see that. Yeah, it was just super impressive. Can you tell us a little bit about your strategy in um, dismantling the current system and, you know, and ceding sovereignty? Sure. Well, I'll talk about Soulfire and our lane and then I'll zoom out a little bit to how mm-hmm. I think it fits in because um, there's lots of strategies that are needed. But Soulfire Farm you know, we, we're a farm and we're committed to uprooting racism and seeding sovereignty in the food system. And we're a, t- a powerful team of about 14 of us. Some are part-time, some are land-based, some are not. And the way that we do this work is in three basic spheres. So the first is working with the land herself. So we're using these Afro-Indigenous practices to restore the lands, um, bring carbon back into the soil, increase biodiversity, grow food and medicine. And then that food and medicine is distributed primarily through our solidarity shares, which is a no no cost doorstep delivery program for survivors of food apartheid in Albany and Troy. So growing food, you know, feeding the community is foundational, that direct survival program. The second sphere of our work is around um, education and equipping and inspiring the rising generation of black and brown farmers. So we do, we have our week-long fire immersion farming in relationship with earth, which is sort of our flagship program. It's a 50 hour hands-on course from seed to table that is very rooted in ancestry and culture. But we also have, you know, day-long workshops. We have a LOL video series. We have an 18 month braiding seeds fellowship that provides wraparound support for 10 rising star beginning farmers every year. a number of online trainings and so ask a sister farmer and so on. And then our sort of third and final sphere of work is the systems change work uh, because we recognize that the laws in this country and the institutions in this country are really skewed against farm workers, against black farmers, against the earth herself, right? And so we're, you know, I just got to speak to the Senate earlier this week, but we're doing um, policy work, uh, things like the Fairness for Farmers, Farm Workers Act, the Justice for uh, Black Farmers Act, supporting institutional build institution building of loan funds like Black Farmer Fund, land trusts like Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, working on writing, speaking, policy, position papers, you know, storytelling, just trying to uprooting racism training, really trying to shift uh, and mobilize the public to make these bigger changes. Um, you know, so our lane as Soulfire Farm, if you were to envision this butterfly of transformative social justice with four winglets, right? There's they're all necessary. Butterfly can't fly without its four winglets. So you have, you know, resist on one, which is like protest, blockade, strike. It's chaining yourself to the pipeline. Um, you have reform on another winglet that's working within the system. You know, trying to get laws changed, institutions to evolve. Um, a lot of those impacts are shorter term, but they're less structural. And then on another winglet, you have building alternative institutions that's creating, you know, co-ops and community run farmers markets and freedom schools and land trusts that try to model as best we can the future we want to see. And then your fourth winglet is heal, uh, because there's no way you go through hundreds of years of this type of exp- uh, exploitation and oppression on either side of the coin and don't come out scarred. And so we need, you know, therapy and art and healing and spirituality. So most of Soulfire's work is on the builds 
right? Like building alternative institutions, supporting alternative institutions. But that's not to say that all the other things aren't important. So something that we're learning how to do is like define our niche and the ecosystem and then work collaboratively with others um, in our network so that all the work is getting done. For example, Heal Food Alliance, we're a member organization. They focus very much on uh, reform and resist, trying to change policy, make societal level change. And so we get to contribute to that, but we don't have to hold that as our sort of primary bundle of, of sacred seeds, so to speak. That's great. Thank you for kind of explaining that, you know, the four wings of the, or the four parts of the butterfly wings. That's beautiful. And it really exemplifies that there is a place for everyone. Exactly. Well, great job testifying on Capitol Hill. I did tune in and you only had five minutes to speak and you did fabulous. But I saw on Instagram that you wanted to say some more things and I want to give you a chance. You know, what were some other things that you didn't get to talk about that? And, and also just for a little more context, you can share. This is for the Food as, Medi- as Medicine subcommittee. Exactly. So I was invited by Senator Cory Booker to testify for the subcommittee on subcommittee of agriculture that focuses on specialty crops, nutrition, organics, and the topic of the hearing was food as medicine. And so I chose to do some storytelling in my five minutes about, you know, what it was like to be a survivor of food apartheid, the the impetus for creating Soul Fire Farm, and the importance of federal programs that pay farmers to um, provide nutritious food for the community. Um, I didn't know what the questions were going to be in advance. And so my regrets were, were twofold. One is, you know, there was a wonderful question that was asked about what kind of reform is needed in SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as food stamps. And my knowledge of what's needed in that program is just outdated because I haven't worked on it for a while. So I was really wanting to hear from the community, you know, what are the barriers that we're encountering? You know, I know back when I was organizing around SNAP, you were not even allowed to accept it if you were a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. Mm -hmm. And the redemption process was so cumbersome. It's like you needed vouchers and you have to call with a landline and like type in all these numbers. And then you get like $4 back or, you know, so people were just like, never mind, we'll just give the food away. Um, I don't know what's changed because we actually stopped using SNAP because it was so cumbersome and started using other funding sources. So I just felt bad because I was realizing in that moment, I was like, these senators, this might be their only information they're getting from the public. (laughs) So we need to make it really pointed. And then I don't, uh, that same senator had asked me about some kind of legislation that she was calling like the Native Food Sovereignty Act. But the question she asked about it was about um, Native folks having choice about what goes into the boxes, which is important, but that's not food sovereignty. I don't know what else is in the act, but I wanted to look it up because there's, you know, you can't call it food sovereignty if there's not land back, if there's not provisions for people growing their own food, having their own, you know, food distribution centers, not just like being provided boxes where they can check what's in the box. So I didn't say that in that moment with my one minute to respond to the question, but I wanted to follow up and, you know, with a little bit more detail, a little bit more feedback. She seemed sincere. She seemed like she was going in the right direction, but I, I haven't seen the legislation. So again, anyone who wants to tell me what they they think the Senate should know about the next farm bill, uh, obviously I'll also look at the platforms for our member organizations that um, and make sure to share that because I recognize the privilege of, of getting to talk before the Senate and I want to, you know, do my best to express as much money of our community needs as I can. <laughs> 
Yeah. And thank you for doing that and being a voice, <laughs> a voice for the people on Capitol Hill. It's like obviously essential. Okay. My last question. It is clear that relationship and connection to land leads to liberation and healing. Can you uh, describe, you know, what does that, what does that liberation and healing look like at Soul Fire Farm? Well, liberation and healing on the land looks really different for everyone. But I will say, you know, anecdotally that it's been almost universal that when folks come to the land by choice and they come in a way that is dignified and culturally relevant, the land does what she does. Like she goes ahead and just sucks our trauma right down through the soles of our feet and composts it and gives it back to us as, as joy. And I've seen that with youth who come here, you know, young people who are really skeptical, don't want to get out of the van. And then after some time playing on the lands, you know, picking food, grow, uh, going ahead and making burritos for their friends. You know, at the end of the day, they're saying, I feel, I feel like new things are possible for me. Like something about this place makes me understand that my destiny is not just to die young from a bullet or to be incarcerated. My destiny can be maybe creating a business, maybe, you know, building a family, maybe making change in my community. There's this sort of sense of possibility that comes when we feel supported by the earth. And, you know, sometimes it looks like tears or laughter or singing or just sort of a quiet shift. But time and again, when when folks reach back after their experience at Soul Fire, um, they're saying that, that the the fetters have fallen away, that the the shackles have fallen away. There's this sense of um, I'm worth something. My life is worth something and I'm going to go ahead and claim it. Mm, it's really beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Leah. Is there anything, um, you know, especially about your book, is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to say about Black Earth wisdom or anything else? Um, I guess... Well, thank you. This has been really fun. Um, if folks want to learn more about Black Earth Wisdom, you can check out blackearthwisdom.org or at black.earth.wisdom. And the book comes out at the end of February. We're going to have a number of virtual events in the month following. So um, definitely check that out. And I encourage everyone to deepen, develop and deepen your own earth listening practice as a way of supporting humanity and getting closer to our primary source. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leah. <laughs> I really Thank appreciate Thank you. Your time. This was fun. Thank you. I really appreciate it as well. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Calliopeia Foundation, supporting organizations and initiatives that reconnect ecology, culture, and spirituality. Learn more about our work at agrariantrust.org. Mm-hmm.